hopefully it's the last new year. Then I have the experience. This, uh, I'm going to go back to Luke again. Yeah, this is kind of probably surprising, I suppose. Uh, we're actually looking back to see when I started. Was it 2018? 2018 is when I started. <laughs> in a long time. Uh, this part, though, of chapter 22 has a new beginning as the Lord uh, transitions his people from the, the law and brings them into a whole whole new, I don't know what you call it, uh, not really a new religion or new new standing before God, new approach to God. But then there's a, and it's, I don't know, yeah, there's a lot of transition here. So in chapter 22, when it first opens up, he, he talks about the feast, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, uh, starting in verse 1 and 2. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So when Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him in the absence of the multitude. So this is a little something that took place out of the public eye. None of the disciples knew about it. It was done behind the Lord's back and so forth. But we got... Satan having his man now on the inside that's ready to undermine everything that the Lord is evidently trying to do. So you've got that in the background. And then in verse 7, the story continues on. And you watch how how Luke portrays the Lord and his position as he goes on with this enemy inside the camp. So verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, and he sent Peter and John, saying, Enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room, and there make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So this is... uh, I'm not, I'm not even sure how you, like, how did this all work out? How did he know that there would be a man with a pitcher of water uh, who would, they would, evidently their paths would cross. They'd be coming into the town and here'd be this guy going with a pitcher of water. And so they, they were to start following him. And then when they got to the house, they were not necessarily even to introduce themselves. They just were to say, can we talk to the master of the house? Can we talk to the homeowner? And so when the homeowner comes out, they said, we... Our teacher, our rabbi, is asking you if there's a place, if you've got the room ready, where he can do the Passover uh, with his disciples. And he doesn't even tell them, you need to explain to them that I am Jesus of Nazareth, or you need to explain to them who I am. He just says, ask if there's a room available for the rabbi. And uh, the willingness of the man to prepare the room and to let them come in and take it, is astonishing or unexpected 
some have even thought that maybe the Lord knew this man ahead of time and coordinated with him and told him, yeah, you send this guy out carrying a pitcher of water or, and my, or we'll find you or something. And then you, and so he was waiting for the Lord to come because it's so unusual that this kind of thing would happen. And I don't know, the scripture doesn't record that the Lord did, went ahead and, and interacted with this man privately at some different time, kind of had things all set up ahead of time. Or whether he didn't, whether it was something where where the Lord, uh, God was, the Spirit was working or something, and the man was just moved to make the room available, or somehow maybe his, the people who were going to use the room had canceled out, and so now he needed somebody. To, I, know, I don't know what happened. What was going on in the background? I don't know. The Lord knew, and the disciples knew that the Lord knew, and they, they followed it out, and it all worked out exactly as he said. So you've got this Judas in the background, who, in the cover of, under the cover of darkness, out of everybody's sight, he is trying to undermine the Lord. And then you've got the opposite picture. You know, it's like like nobody knows about Judas, but now you've got the opposite, where the Lord apparently knows exactly what's going to take place, exactly what needs to happen. He's got things coordinated out that the disciples knew nothing of. We see that the Lord is not. There's a there's a portrayal of the Lord as somebody who is all knowing and and well able to handle whatever is coming his way. Then they go and they prepare the Passover, and in verse 14 is where we, we see a new beginning, I think, or at least in this, this paragraph. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve disciples who were with him, or the twelve apostles, sorry, were with him, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It was all about the Passover. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So we see his partaking in the Passover was coming to an end for a period of time. So then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Until the kingdom of God comes. So it seems to me that Luke takes this, this cup and this comment of not drinking the food of wine, and he links it to the Passover feast. And the Lord is saying, this is the end of the Passover as far as my involvement is concerned. And then he said, and then it says in verse 19, now oh, this is something different that was not part of the Passover feast. It says he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant that is in my blood, which is shed for you. This was something new. The Passover was something that had been around for a long time. And he's saying the Passover, which was established the day you left Egypt, is now coming to an end. I will no longer be partaking of Passover. This is the new feast that I'll be partaking of. This little uh, simple feast of the, the bread and of the cup. And I think that's... It's, it's not interesting in these days when you start to see a lot of people are saying, you know, we need to... We ought to go back and at least... Observe the feast, not so much because it does something for us, but because it, it enhances our understanding of who the Lord is and uh, increases our appreciation of what He has done for us, is what we're saying. And that's becoming more and more popular. 
You can do that. You can go eat the Passover feast. But know this, if you're going to eat the Passover feast, you're eating it by yourself. The Lord is not eating it with you. He will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the day of the kingdom. If you want to eat the feast with the Lord, it's the simple feast with the one piece of bread and the one cup. That's where he's eating. He's no longer eating of the Passover. He did for many years. It was the feast of the Lord, and he would eat with the Jews. That was coming to an end, I think is what he's saying here. It's something new. His authority in being able to establish this, to bring an end to the Passover. And when you think about the how the Passover came to be and the authority of God that was behind it in establishing the Passover and how he secured it and built it up and made it something that the Jews never ceased, even to this day they still keep the Passover. For the Lord, to, for Jesus to come in and say, no, it comes to an end now. It has no more significance before God for this next time period until the day is It will be brought back in the kingdom of God. But for this period of time that we currently live in, it has no significance as far as God is concerned. For him to bring an end to that is unthinkable. You can't have it. How do you put an end to a religious feast? Uh, there's men that have tried to put the end of Jewish religious feasts in the past. Antiochus and other ones who have defiled the temple and they, and you couldn't. It's, it's hard to stop a religious feast and get people to turn away from that. And the Lord is saying, no, this is done. It'll be a new feast now. My people will have a different feast. So his authority and his lordship, but then that's contrasted with his next words in verse 21. He says, behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do such a thing. So you got the uh, that concept of the betrayer of the Lord. So we see then that the Lord knew full well what Jesus was going to do. He was not caught off guard by that. And the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. They didn't understand the magnitude of the uh, betrayal that Judas was about to bring about. I don't think, I think they thought maybe somebody would slip up and lead the priest to Jesus or something, but they didn't realize how deliberately Judas was going to go and, and, and not slip up, but deliberately bring the, uh, the armies and the, the palace guard or the temple guard to come over and arrest them like he was joining their side. It was a real betrayal. When a betrayal takes place, it exposes the weakness of a person. You think of David, when he was king, he was a great king in Israel. He defeated the Syrians. He defeated the, uh, all the enemies up the north and the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and everything. His might and his power with which he established the kingdom of Israel. But when his Ahithophel, I think, or whatever his his close counselor and friend, betrayed him and joined the other side, David became weak. He, he left Jerusalem. He had no army around him. He had a few loyal friends, but out they went Jerusalem through the cover of night. They were running like, like, like scared animals out of Jerusalem. He didn't appear to be a great king at that time. When you've got somebody that will come in and betray you, they can totally undermine you 
and remove all your power and reduce you to, to nothing. So that's what you're thinking of here when he talks about the betrayer. My betrayer is with me at the table. You've got this picture of the Lord with all of his authority bringing to the end, bringing to an end the Passover, and at the same time having the betrayer at the table with him is a portrayal of weakness, being undermined, being brought down. It's it's different than what it used to be. With the children of Israel, when God established them, as long as they followed God, as long as they did his commands, he would establish them in a position of strength and of wealth and of honor. Here you have the Lord Jesus. He's going as it has been determined. He's completely uh, in, submissive to the determination of God on what would take place. He's obeying God, not just at the level of Ten Commandments, but in the very will of God, his purpose for his life. But instead of seeing him established in great power, you see him in a place of real weakness. It's different now. The people of God are not necessarily going to be great and powerful people anymore, like the Jews of old. And you'll start to see as he brings us out that it's, it'll be different now. It's a new, new paradigm. The disciples, of course, they didn't understand this. They, they started to debate, or they started to ask, you know, who's going to be the one that, who's going to be uh, the one that's going to betray him? And you can imagine James just kind of looking out the corner of his eye at Peter and like, oh, it better be you, Peter. You're always sticking your foot in your mouth. I mean, you're going to say something or do something that'll lead him right to Jesus. And Peter would respond back. He'd say, I, what do you mean? What kind of a what kind of disciple are you, James? I mean, you're you're what the son of thunder. I'm a I am a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. In fact, I think when the kingdom comes, I mean, I'm going to be, you'll see when the kingdom comes that I have had more dedication than you, and you'll see in my position in the kingdom how, how I will be rewarded. And the conversation shifts from which of them would betray and betray him to in verse 24 it says there was a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings, Jesus, as he hears this conversation, he puts a stop to it. He says to them, the kings, the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them. Those who exercise authority them are called benefactors, but not so among you. But on the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. He who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed on me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A very interesting exchange here that the Lord has with them. Uh, they are arguing about who is going to be the greatest, and they're thinking about you know, the, the, the days gone by in the, the Jewish kingdom, that people who serve the Lord may follow, that they would be, the Lord would take the humble people and he would raise them up great and set them in positions of power, where they would, uh, you know, you've got the King David again, and you've got uh, other men like uh, Elijah and Elisha who followed the Lord, and they became men who, when they said something, people listened. They were, they were great men in Israel. The Lord says it's different now. The Gentiles... 
The people, those who are not my people, they, when they exercise lordship, they become the boss. They call themselves benefactors. They say, it's, it's your privilege to be my servant because I will take care of you and give you food and shelter and, and whatever else. So they call themselves benefactors, but really they're lords. They're ruling over them. They, they want to have power over another person. Not, I don't want that among you. Those who will be great, I'm not going to take them and lift them up to these great positions of power where they can tell all of my people what they need to do. Those who are great now, they will be servants. They will do what they can to make sure that there's food on the table. You make sure that there is something there for my people to be nourished, to be encouraged, to be built up. He said, you know that the in these days when we think about the great person, it's not the guy who is waiting on the tables. He's not the great person. It's the one who's actually sitting down at the table being waited upon. He's the great man in this in, in our normal thinking. The Lord says that's not like that for you guys. You'll see here that you're sitting at the table and I am serving you. I am giving you the food that will nourish you. I am showing you these new truths that will guide and direct you. As if you are the great ones and I am the, the waiter, the servant. But that's that's the new way. Those who will be great will be servants. They will be they will be working to build up and strengthen the people of God. But that's not to say that the Lord doesn't appreciate the uh, the working of His people, His servants. He says, you disciples, you have continued with me in my trials. You have gone through and nobody has recognized me. You have, you have followed me. And you will be recognized for that, but not in this age. It will be in the future age, in my kingdom. Then you will sit on thrones. He's almost comparing himself to David when David was the anointed of God. Samuel had anointed him and Saul had rejected him and was chasing around the countryside. And David had these men that followed him. They recognized him, acknowledged that he was the anointed of God. They knew that he was going to be the future ruler, but he was not the ruler at the time. He was running around, hiding in caves, living in the wilderness. They were there at his side. These men that were at his side then became the mighty men of David and they were listed. Uh, many of them and shown to be put in positions of, of uh, high positions where they were over other of David's people. They were recognized when David became king, he set them in positions that were uh, fitting for men that had gone with David in his trials and stuck close to him. That kind of thing it seems that the Lord is looking at. He says, during the time when David was not yet king, they were nobodies. This period of time, you are not going to be great people among the world. You're going to be little people. But you continue with me in my trials, and I will recognize you. I will acknowledge your service in that day, the day of his kingdom. Now, normally when we we think of what the Lord says by uh, the impression maybe that comes to my mind when he, he says, you have continued with me in my trials. I would, have, I would have imagined then that when you go through and you suffer persecution, when you are really beat down and you, are <clears throat> and you prove faithful, you become a true martyr, you continue in those kinds of trials of the persecutions and so forth. 
then you will be recognized as long as you are faithful in persecutions and so forth. But that doesn't seem to be what he's saying because notice in verse 31 that the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before. You will deny three times that you know me. Peter, I mean, would you say then that Peter continued with the Lord in his trials? Because he was there, but he was denying the Lord. Did he? That's, that's normally, I would not consider Peter as having continued with the Lord in his trials. But he told them in just the paragraph before, he said, you have continued with me in my trials. So I think when he's talking about his trials, he's not talking about the physical persecution and so forth. I think he's talking about, like David, when David was in the wilderness and nobody would recognize him as king. Nobody would recognize him as the anointed of the Lord and acknowledge him as the rightful ruler over the people of God. Those days of trials, when they... Everybody thought David was a nobody, that he was just an upstart who was trying to topple his master. You read the, the uh, common thought of the day was that, uh, of David's day, was that David was trying to overthrow Saul's kingdom and take over the kingdom. That's what they thought. These men who followed, or the men that followed David, they didn't believe that he was trying to start a rebellion and trying to take over the kingdom. They believed that he was the anointed of God and that God had decreed that this man would reign over the people of God. And they continued then with David in those trials, those times where the long waiting when, when people denied that he was the anointed. I think that's the trials that he's talking about. That Peter was there when, and he was the one, when people were saying Jesus was a, John the Baptist raised from the dead, or he was some other kind of prophet or something like that. Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Being so convinced that he was the Messiah, he actually went into the enemy's den, and he went right where the soldiers were at. Not quite inside the courtroom, but he was out in the courtyard, waiting to see what would happen or what could happen. And everybody else was mocking Jesus and saying, you are a nobody. Peter seemed to believe that he was somebody worth following and risking your life for. Even though in the end he denied the Lord, denied knowing the Lord. He didn't deny that he was the Messiah. It seems that the Lord is saying that the time is coming now and People are not going to recognize and acknowledge the true ruler. They are going to despise him and they're going to hate him. That is what, that is what you have to look forward to. Those who hold fast to the truth that he is the anointed, that he is the savior of the world, those are the ones that continue with him in his trials. So he tells them in a, then in verse 35, he says, look, when I sent you out without money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. 
This was earlier in Luke when he sent a bunch of them out. Twice he sent them out. He sent the 12 out. And then later, <coughs> he sent the 70 out. And he told them just to go out, go to whatever village, and you start telling them about telling them about me, about uh, all that you've heard from me. And so they would go and preach. And they didn't bring any money with them or any sword or any protection because the Lord kind of went before them and made sure that they were taken care of, that they were they were, they were provided for, and they were kept safe. He said, that's, it's going to be different now. He said to them, now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. He who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written of me must be accomplished. He was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here's two swords. And he said, it is enough. It'll be different now. God will not necessarily go before you and make your way good and comfortable and give you a good reception. You're going to go out and it's, you're going to go out at the, the risk of your life and you better prepare for yourself. You better make sure that you have a money bag, that you got your coat, make sure you've got some personal protection like a sword and so forth. It's, it's going to be different. When he told Peter that Satan desired, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat, he, he comforted Peter with the word, or attempted to comfort Peter with the word, that I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You would hold fast to me. And that when you return to me, strengthen your brother. I don't know if, if I had been Peter's shoes and if I had kind of known what was coming down the pike and the, the, the difficulty, it'd be, I'd be like, Lord, can't you pray something a little bit different? I mean, I appreciate you pray that my faith would not fail, but how about you pray that maybe the little servant girl wouldn't come up and ask me the question? What, you, why let me fall? Why, did you, why didn't you just pray, Lord, pray to the Father and say, Father, Satan's asked for Simon. Don't give him. Don't give him up. Don't let Satan have Simon. That's not what the Lord prayed. The Lord said, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Satan's going to have you. I'm going to let him have you. I'm not going to step in and stop it. It's different now. God is not necessarily going to intervene and to deliver from these things that Satan would like to do. You go out with without a money bag, you're an idiot. You need to grab your money bag, get your coat. You need to get your sword. It's going to be different now. God is not necessarily going to intervene when the enemy rises up against you. And he says the reason is because the things that are written of me need to be fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors. And God would intervene when the enemies of the Lord rose up against him. It would not, persecution or hatred or rejection of people around you would not be a sign of being unfaithful to the Lord. Like you're not being... Uh, like it was for the Jews, as long as they were faithful to the Lord, the Lord would build them up. It's going to be different now. It's a new beginning. 
He teaches, and then verse 39, he says, as, as he came out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he's not saying, Pray that God would deliver you so that you don't experience the temptation. Because you see, as he, as he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He, uh, he prayed, if it was possible, the cup would be removed. But he recognized that it was not possible. The cup would not be removed. And he submitted himself to the Father's will. It's not that he was praying to be extracted from that time of temptation so that he wouldn't have to experience the hardship. He was going to go through it. That's, that's, that was there. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. If Peter uh, had prayed that he would, or there were the disciples, as he called them, that prayed that they would not enter into temptation, they would have come to that hard time and they would have found the strength of the Lord, as many of the people of God have. They found the strength of the Lord and, and has enabled them to go through the worst of persecution, even being burned at a stake and everything else, and still confess Jesus as Lord through all of that. It's going to be a different time, he says. It's, it's, it's going to be hard to to stand and claim Jesus as Lord. And God is not going to necessarily stand up and deliver you from the hard times that you go through. You see in verse 43 that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. He strengthened him, and yet, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and a sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. The angel strengthened him, but the time would still be difficult. And the thought of what was coming down the pike was such a heavy load, so much stress that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's some, there's a little technical part here. There's some of the manuscripts have it said that this uh, angel appearing from appearing to him from heaven and strengthening him and his sweat becoming like drops of blood say that that's not in the original. Some manuscripts don't have that. But there's evidence, I think, that there was some of the, uh, the early church writers, you know, they wrote different letters and stuff like that. They reference these verses uh, really early, like within a few decades of when they would have originally been written. Uh, so to say that they're not original is, is uh, I think, is kind of unlikely. I think it actually is. There's, there's evidence that it is actually original in some manuscripts for whatever reason, just didn't have those in there. Later manuscripts than these Christian authors. But it was a time of... Uh, it, it, it seems to me that what the Lord is going through, he went through it first before his people go through it. But it's it's showing us, and maybe 
you want to follow the Lord's example and follow the path where he took, this is the path that he went. It's not easy, and God would not intervene on his behalf and turn his enemies away. It says when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow, and he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter temptation. You are going to follow the same path that I'm going to follow. As long as you hold on to my name, you're going to run into the same people that I've run into. And while he was still while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He knew full well what was going on. And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them did. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop. Permit even this. And touched his ear and he healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but... This is your hour, the power of darkness. When darkness would be able to do as it wished. And God was not going to intervene. He was not going to put a limit on darkness and say this is as far as you can go and no farther. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with them, for he is a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out with bitterly. It wasn't until after he had denied the Lord three times and after the rooster crowed, that's when the Lord turned and looked at him and all of a sudden Peter realized what had just happened. It wasn't before the servant girl came that the Lord caught his eye and said, "Hmm, Peter, get ready. Or after the first time he denied the Lord, the Lord looked at Peter and caught his eye and said, Peter, be careful. There was no interaction with Peter during this time until it was over. And then the Lord looked at Peter. It's different now. There are times when the enemy will be allowed to do whatever he wishes. We find ourselves stumbling and we find ourselves falling. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Who can stand up and to these kind of men 
who have no qualms about beating the Lord in the face and tell them, you ought not to do that. This is the anointed of God. Who could stand up and tell them that? They're not going to believe you. They're likely to turn and beat you. And the situation seems so hopeless. Verse 66, I said, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, they came together and they led him into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And what he's referencing is, he's a, is a prophecy in Daniel. I'm pretty sure. One of the visions that Daniel saw uh, when everything of the beasts and all the rest of that stuff, when they were and that it all come to an end of the beasts and so forth. <clears throat> he was watching the vision and he, he says, I've rest the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season of time. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom. And then... All peoples and, nation, and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, his kingdom, the one that shall not be destroyed. It's in Daniel chapter 7. I think he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. The son of man, I don't know that you see the phrase son of man elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's there in Daniel. I mean, I guess you see it in Ezekiel, but... Son of Man coming in power, sitting at the right hand of the power of God, receiving his kingdom, receiving his dominion. That reality of the Son of Man receiving his kingdom and taking dominion over the whole earth, that reality seemed to contradict the situation so, like, you could not contrast it more. As you see them beat him in the face, and there's nothing you can say. He says, if I tell you who I am, you won't believe. Nor will you treat me honestly. If I ask you a question, you won't answer. You won't let me go. You're, you are determined. But there is coming a day when all will see who he really is. There won't be any question about is he God's anointed or not. He will sit on the right hand of the power of God. of God he said to them you said it and they didn't believe what he said they twisted his words they said ah you're claiming to be God they said what further testimony do we need for we have heard from ourselves of his own mouth twisted his truth twisted the reality and they used it then to condemn him to destroy him, used it for an excuse to bring him to Pilate. 
It's different now. A new age is coming. And the Lord is not recognized. He is not acknowledged. He is not lifted up on high. He's despised. He's rejected. His words are twisted. He's cast down. And it will be this way until it is all accomplished. That word that was said, he was numbered with the transgressors. Its time is coming to an end, and he speaks of that future kingdom when the disciples would be with him, next to him, on his throne in the kingdom, when he would be sitting down at the right hand of the power of God, when this, this age that we live in comes to an end, it does not last forever. There's a time, a period of time, and then he will be established on his throne, and all will be compelled, they will be unable to deny that he is Lord. His words will no longer be twisted. His words will be established. Truth will be known. And his people will then enter in fully into his rest and into the salvation that he's provided. Our Father, as we come before you and look at this portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ and what what he endured, Seems like there's got to be a better way. That this pathway through weakness and through rejection is is just what value does it have? What is just delays things? It. But we know that you are a God of of justice and mercy, and you. Use that time when David was hated by by, the, by Saul and, and by the people. You use that time to bring many people to David, and you use that time to demonstrate to all that he is that he was your anointed to bring him up onto the throne, not by overthrowing. Saul and his kingdom, but by showing to all people that you had chosen David to be the ruler over your people, and they saw him. And it's the same now that you use this time when your son has been despised and rejected. You brought many people to him. And have you seen the reality of what took place here that he was numbered among the transgressors, he bore our iniquities. He is your anointed. He is the one who rightfully has the dominion over all nations and kingdoms and power. I thank you for working in us, calling us, inviting us to come to him. We thank you for receiving us, becoming our our sin and our failure. We thank you for your son, Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.